Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 521st episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I'm Mike Allen. I'm a family doctor and the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm also an adjunct professor at the U of A. And if you looked years and years ago, a very enthusiastic health science student came to visit the peer group and wanted to get involved in research. I'm not going to mention names, but Caitlin, can you talk about her? (laughs) Sure. Thanks, Mike. Um, so that in fact was me a fateful day back in 2013, actually. Um, and fast forward to today, I am, my name is Caitlin Finley. I'm a family medicine resident in my second year at the university of Alberta in Edmonton. And this is the first time we've had Caitlin on and, uh, it's to do with uh, a recent tools of practice that was published just recently about a very common topic. And uh, Caitlin, where where did that question come from? Yeah, so um, what we're going to talk about today is antibiotic prophylaxis for urinary tract infections. And that is a question that came up in clinic a couple of times, actually, um, after we had a couple of patients who were coming in for urinary tract infections. And when we looked back in their records, it looked like they had actually been treated for UTIs uh, within the past few months, at least. And so we were kind of wondering, with these patients who were having recurrent urinary tract infections, was there any evidence for antibiotic prophylaxis to help try and prevent recurrence in the future? And Mike, and and both, both you and Caitlin, I may be wrong. But I think UTIs are fairly common. <laughs> yeah, they're just a tiny bit common. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about UTIs a lot more, and we'll bring in uh, Jennifer Young and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. just as a spoiler alert, when a patient comes in and says, I think I have a UTI, they're somewhere between at the lowest 55%, right? All the way up to somewhere north of 80 um, So... Yeah, the the diagnostic criteria is: Did they book an appointment for a UTI? And and that is that is how common uh, that that just speaks to how common the condition yeah. is. And like I said, as Mike says, we'll, we'll I think we're doing a tools for practice on how do you assess whether a person has a, uh, a UTI. And but in this case, I think it's still an important one because if you've had one, it's quite likely you're going to get another one at some point. And that's why it's so important to talk about this. So you, you guys did it. With, there was a couple other people on the tools for practice, right, Caitlin? Yeah. So I worked on this tools for practice with Jamie Falk, who's a pharmacist, PharmD out of um, Winnipeg and is a member of the peer team. And as well with Tina Koronik, who is a family doc and uh the head of the peer team out of the U of A. And she is also my preceptor for residency. Excellent. So uh, let's just just go through what the evidence is that you guys found. Yeah, so our question for this Tools for Practice was, what is the efficacy of antibiotic prophylaxis for recurrent UTIs in non-pregnant women? And the first part of the evidence that we looked at was 
comparing antibiotic prophylaxis to placebo. And so when we looked at uh, trials comparing to placebo, we had one big meta-analysis that was kind of our largest um, study that we looked at that was published in Cochrane. And then we had another RCT that was published after the Cochrane review. And those are kind of the, the main areas where we got our evidence from. So when we looked at the Cochrane systematic review, this was a, a study in non-pregnant women with recurrent UTIs. And we were they what they looked at in the systematic review was uh, antibiotic prophylaxis compared to placebo for somewhere between six to 12 months. So the way that they reported the results, they broke that up into either microbiological recurrence, which meant that you had to have some sort of a, a positive uh, culture test, like a positive urine culture to say that there was a recurrence. Um, and then they also broke it up into clinical urinary tract infections. So as Mike was kind of mentioning in the intro, um, patients having symptoms and feeling like they had a, a UTI and that didn't necessarily need to have a positive urine culture. Yeah, and I, and I think the the important thing is these are the, these studies were done in sort of a, a research setting, and I you know we're going to probably talk about this maybe in another podcast about whether you even need to know if there is bacteria or if you need to do cultures and all that sort of stuff, and I'm pretty sure most people know the answer to that is not the case, but. Uh, the, so the most really important outcome really is the clinical urinary tract infection or dysuria. But they they found they had they they had numbers for both of those occur, out, outcomes though. Yeah, exactly. So the um, no matter which way you looked at it, the results were quite similar. So if you looked at microbiological reoccurrence, um, they had twelve percent of the women in the in the antibiotic prophylaxis group who experienced at least one uh, recurrence that was picked up with a positive culture versus 66% in the placebo group. So that gave you a number needed to treat of two. And then very similarly, just with patients saying that they uh, had symptoms of a UTI and felt like they had a UTI, there were 7% of women in the antibiotic prophylaxis group who experienced that compared to 51% in the placebo group. And so that was a number needed to treat of around three. So, so it seems like roughly speaking, if you don't take antibiotics, it's about a 50 to 60% recurrence rate. And if you do take antibiotics, about 10%. And Mike, th those numbers are fairly impressive as far as effectiveness. Yeah, and, and this is what we've talked about a lot, James. Mm -hmm. you're, you're picking people who are high risk. Mm -hmm. So these women are getting into these studies because they have lots of UTIs. So they're likely, it's like how trials pick people who have heart disease. Mm -hmm. They pick people who have COPD exacerbations, et cetera. But this is even better. You, you, the, these patients uh, with the UTIs are very likely to get them with, with exacerbations. It's, it's still relatively unlikely. So, And that's who we can make the biggest difference in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to make a difference when it isn't happening. Yes. <laughs> so, you heard it here it first. Happen. I mean, that Mike, that's the most profound thing you've ever said. 
You know, and how many 500 if you, episodes? If in? you don't get something, you likely won't get it. You, it's hard to prevent something you're never going to get. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but these are, it's a really important thing to remember. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, take all the, all the things we take for low, low risk. And, but this is something that's high risk. And that's why the number needed to treats are so good. And, and people are likely willing to tolerate adverse events, which, Caitlin, uh, you guys did describe the adverse events that occurred in these trials. Yeah. And I mean, it does make sense if you're if you're giving somebody an antibiotic, um, you might expect some adverse events to happen. So most commonly, um, these were non-serious adverse events that happened. It was about 15% of the time in the group who received antibiotics. And those adverse events were things like skin rash, nausea, and GI upset, um, as well as headaches. And that was compared to 8% in the placebo group. So importantly, there was no difference in serious adverse events. So those would be things like allergic reactions or um, things that were, you know, more serious than, than just a rash or some GI upset. Yeah, and I also know, I think if I remember, uh, I went and looked at the, the Cochrane review, and I think they, there was also some incidences of vaginal and oral candidiasis, which we often, you can see from, a, you know, courses of antibiotics. And I guess, you know, if you're on them for a long period of time, and we'll talk about the antibiotics that people got in, in a bit. But, uh, you know, we're again, so we're looking at about a, you know, close to a 50% absolute benefit and about, what, 5 to 10% chance of adverse events about placebo. So... Not a bad difference, um, but were there any limitations to this research at all? Yeah, so this Cochrane review was published in 2004, and a lot of the studies that were included in that were quite a bit older. So most of the studies that were included are now at least 25 years old, and um, they were also quite small overall. Yeah, and I think, you know, even... I would say we don't need to do another study ever of this. We know that antibiotics will, will reduce the risk. And that's and that's why the, it's not the Cochrane review. There's no real reason to update it, really. Um, yeah. You know, so the, these and many of these studies were done actually after I started in practice. So they are not that old, but they are old. <laughs> and I was thinking that very thing. That's why I was laughing. But I was also thinking a little bit about, you know, keeping things in context. So these... These studies uh, that Caitlin's reporting, they're even combined, eight RCTs, you're getting 370 women in Mm -hmm. those. And we're getting a clear answer, and James is right, you really don't need any more research when the difference is 50%. Mm -hmm. Even if another study comes in at 40% or 30%, does that change anything? Now compare that to the recent review by the U.S. Task Force on the use of multivitamins where they had I think a hundred thousand people studied, and they said there's insufficient evidence to know. Oh, good grief! <laughs> yeah, no, there's sufficient evidence. You just don't like the answer. Yeah, yeah. So, we, we need, this is one we, of these ones. We need one more large study. <laughs> yeah. So this is what this is one of these ones where the the results are so dramatic, and we've talked about that too before. Like, y- you don't even need stats. <laughs> no. <laughs> And, and, and yeah. now there, is, there has been one study that you guys uh, found since that time. And why don't you just mention what that was? 
Yeah, so this was another RCT that was published in 2005. Um, and this one was pretty large comparatively. Um, so there are 302 women and this was looking at phosphomycin um, compared to placebo. And that was over a time frame of six months. And they found in that study, again, uh, the same results as, as previously mentioned. So 7% of women in the antibiotic group had a recurrence of their UTI. And that was compared to 75% in the placebo group. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that would be the case, because up, probably up until that time, phosphomycin didn't have any studies. And so they kind of, you know, if you're an antibiotic, you wish you want to have this outcome because it's not just a seven day course. It may be using it for months and months and months. And it's, yeah. you know, it's a it's a, uh, a good way to get whatever antibiotic it is used for this, even though I would suggest almost all of them. We'll talk about what medications were used. Almost all of them are, are generic at present. Yeah, except yeah. for the phosphomycin too is that that's a the big marketing scheme for that drug is the one one dose to treat UTIs and this one was every ten day dosing. Caitlin, I think. Yeah, exactly. It was so. I mean, if you're if you're going to be on an antibiotic long term, like for six months, then um, it might be nice to only have to take something every ten days as compared to every single day. Yeah, and that's yeah. the marketing key of these guys i think is that they can mm -hmm. they can push that they're you don't have to take them as often yeah and and and, and then of course there was no comparative arm where they gave these the other antibiotics every three or four or five days and it could equally as well potentially have worked as well so it's it's tricky it, it's like a like some of the antibiotics for uh you know, respiratory tract infections, uh, some of the, I think, newer quinolones or whatever it was, was you can use these for five days because we have a study that compared five days versus 10 days of amoxicillin, but they didn't have a five day of amoxicillin treatment group. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, and, but then there was one other uh, meta-analysis that you guys talked about. Yeah. So now this one was looking at antibiotics compared to non-antibiotic options for prophylaxis. So what, what that included were things like taking oral probiotics, um, vaginal estrogen, cranberry, or um, as well as something called D-manos powder, which I actually hadn't really heard of prior to this meta-analysis. So, I use it in my shampoo, Caitlin. Oh. <laughs> and just okay. so you know, I, I hadn't heard about it till just now. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like a sugar, but that's all I know. Yeah. When I first I guess read it, I thought the... it said moose. <laughs> that's why I'm using it in my hair. I know. I exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess. Um, it's okay because you, you know, you maybe don't need to know about it because the, the bottom line from this meta-analysis that was comparing different antibiotics to um, non-antibiotic treatments found that there wasn't really a big difference um, in between the, the, the women who are getting antibiotics and the groups who are getting the non-antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, but the challenge with this meta-analysis is that there were only three RCTs that were um, that were included in it, and each of them were comparing 
kind of different things. And they ended up with quite different rates in each of the groups that they were comparing. So there's quite a bit of variation between the comparators there. Yeah, and that always makes it makes it tricky to interpret it. But even even in in this uh, case, I mean, it looks, certainly, if anything, the antibiotics were, you know, did better than the non-antibiotics. So, you know, yeah, so overall, yeah. overall, um, they found that there was forty three percent had a recurrence in the antibiotics group compared to fifty four percent in the non-antibiotics group. So, it's it's a bit different than. Um, than the rates that we were talking about previously when we were talking about antibiotics compared to placebo. Yeah, no, for sure. So it certainly sounds like uh, prophylactic antibiotics are going to work. And I think, and I'm just going to sort of run through uh, in that systematic review, the, the original one you were talking mm-hmm. about, I mean, they use nitrofurantoin, they use trimethoprim, cephalochlorus, cephalexin, perfloxacin, ciprofloxacin, norfloxacin, um, all sorts of different uh antibiotics and I think most of them were once a day there are a few examples uh, and, and I don't know maybe Mike you want to comment on this there is some evidence around um, using uh, prophylactic antibiotics post-coital or, or post-intercourse because that is one of the causes of urinary tract infections yeah so that is a that there there are options of taking them regularly mm-hmm. or if it's in the case um and it's a it's a very reasonable question to ask if if the patient notices them reoccurring more commonly um, after after sex, and so then in those cases you can just have them say take one after intercourse after they've tried all the usual things like yeah. going pee immediately after and all that stuff. But so if that doesn't if that isn't enough, then that's that's another option for prevention. I don't think that's part of what uh, Kaylin and her team looked at, no. but it is. It's always been one of those things that um, you could suggest to patients. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, depending on how frequent sex is, they could um, take more or less antibiotics, I guess. Yeah, I, I remember having conversations with some people. Go, they, they go, that's a lot of antibiotics I'm going to have to take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, no, no, that no. is always, that can get tricky in the conversation, but hopefully it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so what's the context for this? So we, we have pretty solid evidence and we don't need any more evidence that it does something so what what uh, what was the context you, context you guys came up with yeah so i think something that's important here we've kind of alluded to this but we haven't really given it a definition um so we're talking about recurrent utis and those are defined as at least three episodes of uti in 12 months or two episodes within six months So like we said before, these are people who they're getting these frequently, they're probably going to get them again. And what we what we kind of found is um, when we were looking at whether one antibiotic is better than another, because as you mentioned, there's it's kind of all over the map for which antibiotics were studied and then different doses of antibiotics, um, different dosing regimens, for example, how often the antibiotics are given. And there's not really any clear evidence for one antibiotic providing better prophylaxis than another. So um, there was one meta-analysis that was done of 12 studies 
And that included about a thousand patients. And this was comparing nitrofurantoin to other antibiotics. And they didn't find that there was any significant difference between those groups for reducing UTIs. But interestingly, nitrofurantoin increased the adverse events um, by about 1.8 times. And I think something else that was important to point out with nitrofurantoin is that uh, there are rare cases of pulmonary toxicity. So this can be either an acute reaction or a chronic reaction that can happen. And um, it's actually not as rare as I, as I thought. So about one in 5,000 patients can have an acute reaction and one in somewhere between 750 to uh, 7,500 can have a chronic reaction with nitrofurantoin. Yeah, no, sir, I've certainly, I've never seen it, but I've certainly heard of cases in the, in the literature about it. But, you know, we're going to run into that with, not with every drug, but, you know, there's a, uh, a risk of allergic reaction with, sulf, you know, the sulfur drugs or with, you know, uh, the penicillin type antibiotics. But they're, they're also in there. They're not in that numbers. They're in like even higher numbers, like in the one in the 30 or 40,000. Um, and, you know, hopefully, and, and if a person's already tolerated it, then they're probably going to be fine with it. But I think you're right. I don't think there's any, any, uh, uh, real guidance we can give it to what drug use other than it might be worth using the one that worked in the first place for your bladder infections. But, you know, only, you know, if you didn't tolerate it, but you've got lots of choices. You can go with cephalosporins, you can go with uh, the quinolones, you can go with, uh, like I said, nitrofurantoin or e even, uh, uh, I think one of the, one of the regimens, if I remember correctly, was, I think it's a half a tablet of Bactrim or the, you know, the combination trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. And we were talking actually before the podcast about this. You can actually just use trimethoprim on its own. There's, there's decent evidence for that for prevention and actually treatment. But uh, uh, the, the tricky part is when you get it on its own, it's more expensive than the combination. So there's all sorts of issues associated with it. Um, now, one of the big concerns that people might have is the, is the issue with resistance. Now, that's another... Mm -hmm. That's Mike, we could probably talk about resistance for about 30 podcasts about the... You know, the the importance of it and or the not so much of the importance of it but did there was one rct that did look at that right yeah there was so we didn't find a ton of data on antibiotic resistance but uh, there was one RCT where they were looking at TMP SMX compared to oral lactobacillus or probiotics. And so what they had found was that during the prophylaxis uh, timeframe, so when the patients were receiving the TMP SMX, they did have increased resistance to the antibiotic up to about uh, 80 to 95% of the patients who were, um, who were getting the antibiotic had urine cultures that were uh, resistant to the antibiotic. But what was interesting is that it kind of returned back to the baseline levels of resistance, which was around 20 to 40% after they were off of that, uh, off of the antibiotic. 
In fact, I've seen that not, not just with Bactrim, but with uh, other antibiotics. I remember a really cool study in the Lancet probably about eight or nine years ago where they just gave a bunch of people who didn't have any infection, they just gave them a, I think it was a macrolide, and it was exactly the same thing. About 20 to 40% had resistance at the beginning. And after even a three or four days, it went up to about 80 to 90%. And then it went back after you stopped taking it after a few months. And so they gave them erythromycin just more because they were mad at them. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a, a partly torture. Yeah, it's not that bad a drug. We're joking. No, no, but no, it was. It was a really interesting. It was a really cool. They these people did not. They wanted to just literally see what would happen if you got. I think it was just a couple of days, maybe three days of antibiotics, and and the resistance went. You know, and they looked at uh, bacteria on the skin, and it went from twenty percent, and then uh, like a week later, it was eighty. Yeah, it's crazy, and then it comes right back. Yeah, to normal. and and, and I think. You know, yeah, we could certainly talk about this, but I've always struggled, and I'm sure, Mike, you always struggled, is I never really know what resistance, especially for a bladder infection, even means. I oh, because you, you, we've all, if you've been in practice at all, you've had this case, uh, and if you've been in practice a long time, you've had a hundred of them. The You start an antibiotic, the culture you did it for some reason comes back, and the sensitivity is in there, and it says that the antibiotic you give the bacteria is resistant to, you call the patient up, oh, no, I'm feeling way better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you immediately <laughs> switch to the other antibiotic. No, and, 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 and then give them way more side effects. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry it didn't, uh, but the antibiotic I gave you didn't work. I know it's only three days, and now it's six days out, but I'd like to start you on another course. Yeah, of yeah. Please don't do that. That's yeah. And I, and I see here that imipenem is sensitive too. So I'm going to send you to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. We're going to use outpatient, we're going to outpatient IV. Yeah. yeah no, no, it's, 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 it's uh, the, the, the best culture and sensitivity is, is your patient getting better? Yeah. I, I, it reminds me of a time at your conference years ago, James, um, and he had an ID doc speaking and what was one of the really great ones who's, yeah. who's funny. And I, I drew this kind of question, like, how do you, you know, how do we reconcile the fact of sensitivity uh, testing when a lot of the time it's not, it's not reliable and people do better on and do well on antibiotics mm-hmm. that they're, that the bacteria is apparently resistant to and et cetera. She just kind of stared at me, cursed me for asking, and then I'm tearing apart the very foundation of her, her profession or something mm-hmm. like that. She said, and I thought it was the best answer because there is no answer. Yeah, there's yeah, no, there's it's no it, it's you know, re- resistance is useful to know if the patient's not responding because yeah. then it might be a reason for it. But yeah, I, I did ID at St. Paul's Hospital for 17 years, and I never got a great answer from anybody yeah no and i, and I think that obviously resistance overall in the community yeah. is very important it's yeah. and it is affecting the utility of antibiotics and there will be the very sad case of patients who get infections that are resistant to everything or most everything and, yeah. and don't survive the infection and that that's obviously tragic but for the average interpreting it in the front lines boy it is it is fuzzy yeah no exactly no exactly so um Anything else you want to add, uh, Caitlin? I think that maybe the maybe the sort of contents about like what would you recommend? What are the what are the some of the drugs, Caitlin, yeah. and and what are the options for people? And then there's it doesn't have to be drugs, although we have a yeah. pharmacist here, so we have to pretend it's all about the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, well, I'm I'll all see. I just there's nothing but drugs. 
<laughs> okay, well, I'll see if I can uh, appease both of you with my answer then. So, yeah, there's not really, um, as I mentioned, not really clear evidence for one antibiotic providing um, better prophylaxis than another. So some of the options that, that have been studied include things like daily dosing of the TMP SMX, uh, or as James mentioned, just the trimethoprim on its own, um, 100 milligram tabs, um, although that might be more expensive and therefore not a great option. You can also look at uh, the same drug, but just using it three times per week. So TMPSMX three times per week, that's been studied as well. Um, and then as we had mentioned before, you can also try using phosphomycin three grams every 10 days. And then uh, some of the other options that had been studied were nitrofurantoin, and there were different doses of that. Um, so 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams daily. Um, uh, and I would certainly at, suggest, given that 50 is evidence for it, and, and the, the GI adverse events to nitrofurantoin are certainly somewhat dose dependent, I would, as much as possible, suggest 50, especially for people who don't tolerate the other doses. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use, um, there's, there's lots of different options of the antibiotics that you, that you can use. Um, and the trials were mostly six to 12 months. So it might be reasonable to try if you're going to go ahead with antibiotic prophylaxis in that select group of patients, then it might be reasonable to try using the antibiotics for about six months or so and see if that makes an effect for them. Um, but if patients are maybe hesitant to try antibiotics for prophylaxis, then there's other things that you can consider discussing with them as well. So uh, there, there was actually a previous tools for practice done on increasing fluid intake for UTI prevention in, in patients who have low baseline fluid intake. Um, so that would be in patients who have less than one and a half liters of fluid intake a day, increasing their fluid intake by about that much, by about another one and a half liters, actually uh, decreases their, their risk of having a UTI in the future and getting um, antibiotic pro prescriptions for UTIs in the next year. And then I so guess, we'll, be, go ahead. No, yeah. go ahead, Caitlin. I was going to say that that would be one thing that uh, that could be reasonable. That's not an antibiotic. And, and then I was going to say, and then one thing that I'm sure many clinicians are already doing is just to, to say, here's a whole bunch of uh, whatever drug du jour you want to use. And whenever you get symptoms, uh, you can treat it yourself as long as you explain the, you know, what, what are the, the signs or symptoms that they might get that might be indicative of something more severe but I'm, I'm sure you guys do this a lot is to say, you know, if I certainly if I was to get bladder infections every, you know, a couple times a year, I'd, I'd probably just take a, a couple of days of antibiotics. And that's rather than taking it every day. I think that's just as a, just as a, a great an option as well. I, I don't know what you think, Mike. Yeah, that kind of pill in the pocket idea. That's yeah. the other option. And a lot of people will choose that because they don't want to take something not even every day, even every every couple of days. They're they're not interested when um and they and a lot of patients are very favorable to that 
given what we talked about at the beginning, how, uh, you know, for uncomplicated symptomatic cystitis, most, most women know when they have it. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty reasonable guess. Now, if, if something has changed for them and they just keep getting it despite their treatments, mm-hmm. they need to come back and get yeah, tested, exactly. etc. But if it's like the normal ones where they just can go on a short course of antibiotics, get it resolved, and then not have another one for three months or something, that's that's another option for them too. Yeah, excellent. So yeah. Um, anything else, Caitlin? I think, I think that just about probably does it, eh? Yeah, there was just um, one more point that uh, that we'd wanted to mention, um, which was that for women who are postmenopausal, uh, there's a little bit of evidence for using vaginal estrogen. So that's in a cream form or in a ring form, okay. like a pessary, um, that that might actually reduce recurrent UTIs as well. Um, so we have a couple of studies on this, and it's somewhere between... 34 to 61% of women who are getting the vaginal estrogen will have a recurrence of their UTI uh, compared to 72 to 94% uh, in people who are getting placebo. So somewhat similar benefits, I guess. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike, anything else you want to add? So no, I, I think I'm going to wrap up though. We've got, what we've heard is that, you know, there's a lot of the, Prophylaxis uh, with antibiotics for women with recurrent UTIs, uh, that's like three in a year, is uh, helpful, but the number needed to treat between two and three, and that there's options like postcoital if that's the issue, or pills in the pocket as a, as a backup, so there's just a short course of antibiotics when the infections occur, or, or just drinking more water, crazy as that sounds, or vaginal estrogen for postmenopausal. But I think that pretty much wraps it up, Kate. Yeah, I just want to make sure people aren't confused that you don't just put the pill in your pocket. You actually have to take it. (laughs) Yeah, okay, thanks, James, for that. That was, uh, boy. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You'd be surprised how confusing these things can be to some people. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But but, uh, so we've got uh, Mike Kober back here to let us know a little bit about the pipe conference. Hey, thanks, James and Mike. Yeah, super excited to chair 11th Annual Pipe Conference uh, in Edmonton and by live webcasting October 21 and 22, Friday afternoon, Saturday all day. Your great lineups of well-known speakers like James and Mike going to talk about weight, going to talk about Nutru and Poo, some in the clinic, just going to be excellent. So, so, uh, so enjoyable. So enjoyable to chair. Uh, Industry-free event meaning none of the speakers nor the, uh, the conference itself takes uh, or has relationships with industry. So if we're looking for clinically relevant, entertaining, practice-changing, or reaffirming uh, pearls, please come to Pipe. Again, October 21 and 22, Edmonton or remote uh, live webcasting. And if you want to check the websites, uh, peipconference.ca or the peer team's website, peerevidence.ca. So yeah, look forward to seeing everybody there. And we'll uh, put links to it to ever uh, to into our podcast notes, and uh, we would sure love it if you would attend because it's a great event uh, going on. Was it thirteen year, years now? <laughs> Said eleven, but uh, you know, or eleven? Did you say eleven? I couldn't remember that. Yeah, uh, I, I don't understand. You get eleven goals. You get thirteen goals. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I don't under I don't understand numbers. Eleventh <laughs> <laughs> year, you betcha. Nice. Yeah, nice. remember it started off from Mike Allen. Wasn't sure if anybody besides our mothers would actually show up uh, yeah, yeah. 11 years ago and it's just grown since then. So yeah, really, uh, really excited and really 
enthusiastic to uh, really support a, a really high level educational event. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, James. No, that's great. Uh, great job, Caitlin. Uh, you, you and uh, Jamie and Tina did a great job of that tools of practice and a huge number of just practical, useful tips and suggestions for how to deal with this. So uh, I think we'll just leave it at that. So thanks as always for listening. Talk to you later. Thanks. Uh-huh.